Hello, listeners. This is Ken Bishop from Thank the Makers podcast. Last week on Thursday, June 11th, Anthony, Demetrius, and I got together and talked about Rebellion, Star Wars toys, and Space Whales, and created a bonus episode for all of you. Your Highness, the transmission we received. What is it they've sent us? Help. Rebellions are built on hope. This is the Thank the Makers podcast with Ken Bishop, Anthony God, and Demetrius Romanos. Now, time to thank the maker. And so I think it's very safe to say that George Lucas himself was quite a rebe- quite a rebel in his personal life, in his professional life, and what showed up on screen in Star Wars. So you've got this guy who was born in 1944. And as a personal sign of rebellion, his father wanted him to take on the family business of the stationery store that he ran. And George didn't want to do that. He wanted to, to go down his own path. even Too to exciting the, a life. Yeah, to a much different life than, than paper and, and envelopes, I guess. Not well, able to handle that. <laughs> and if, if we look back, you know, in terms of generations, I mean, parents in many ways wanted their children to follow in their footsteps or parents wanted their their children to be safe and secure and successful so george's father had a wonderful goal for him but george didn't want it he wanted his his own course his own trajectory so much so that even when he got into college he had a conversation with his father about what he was going to study and he had to choose paper you're going to study paper pulp I got one word for you, son. Paper. <laughs> and lots of it. Two ply. And so he wanted to do art stuff. And his father said, well, if you're going to do art stuff, then you're going to have to find a way to pay for it yourself. But if you're going to have me pay for it, then you're going to have to do something different. So at first, George went down and, and kind of was, I think he was originally involved in business. But one of his friends went to a different school and encouraged George to apply to that school along with him because there they had an an art program, but it was a, a also a cinema program. So in that program, George was able to learn how to make movies and jumped on that and was off to the races. And then we fast forward to when he starts making movies in class. And I've, I've listened to probably... 30 or 40 different interviews of of George Lucas talking about how he got into filmmaking and everything. And he would sometimes talk about how his, his, his classmates would complain that they weren't able to make movies yet. The professors would give them a certain amount of film to make something with, typically around a specific assignment, and they just wanted to make movies. Well, George would take that little bit of film that he had. For you. Yeah. And and let's let's look at the the times. It was way before digital, so they actually had to record onto film and then have that film processed and all that kind of stuff. So it was a a much different time in movie making. And George would take whatever film he was given and use that film ultimately to make movies. And one of the the famous ones he made was was about a minute long, and it was in an animation class and. I think it was A Day in the Life. I think that was the name of, of his project. And it was just still images with music overlaid on those images. And the images were 
of um, there was Vietnam War f images. There was images of protesters being attacked by police dogs. There was pictures of a couple blondes in bikinis and the word love and all sorts of stuff like that. So even then, George was rebelling against his, his classmates. So I just want to make a movie. And he went and, and did it. Well, a lot of the stuff he did was rebellious, right? Even when he made the movies, he didn't want to sign the toy rights away. He wanted to keep the rights to the toys. And then any at any time that he encountered the Hollywood system or the, the anything that he was expected to do that he didn't agree with, he just didn't do it. So he's always had that rebellious streak. That's what happens when your father works in paper. <laughs> Although the irony is that I've been buying my niece and nephew Star Wars birthday cards for years, so I guess he did end up in stationery after all. Heather just oh, got me yeah. a, a Star Wars birthday card this year for my birthday, so she's even invested in the, the stationary aspect <laughs> of the Lucasfilm stuff. It all I mean, he is now. an enigma, right? He was never like this big name like Spielberg and Cameron in terms of being in the public eye. Like he's sort of this elusive person that like almost got fame by accident and didn't particularly care for it and yet when he wanted to swing his hammer he would and swing it hard yeah because he he's, wanted to maintain that independence he's the guy that really led his life right he doesn't go to any you know i don't see them hollywood premieres you see them at star wars premieres but he doesn't go to parties as far as anyone knows and he he uh do you remember when he sold to Disney? I think he got like four and a half billion dollars, and he just yeah. said, "Yeah, I'm gonna give it away. I'm gonna give it to somebody." It's insane. Then he built all those housing in San Francisco, and then wanted to build. I think they are still building that museum that was supposed to be in Chicago, the Star Wars Museum. Yep, yep. I forget where it's supposed to be now, but I think it's Los Angeles. I definitely think it's California. I yeah. thought it was near the Golden Gate. He had bought that big piece of property or something down that way. But, you know, I almost wonder, like, I went, so ILM has the, the, the Lucasfilm Ranch, and there was a guy that Anthony and I went to school with, it was a year ahead of us, named Scott Liebrecht, that's a close friend of mine, and when he was working for Industrial Light and Magic, um, he took me up to the Lucasfilm Ranch, and just the fact that, like, this place was just a house, it wasn't, you know, some big fancy Apple-esque kind of, like, compound, it was just this old Victorian style house with this big, beautiful wooden staircase. And that was sort of the epicenter of the Lucas world. That in itself is almost a rebellion. A lot of the people that pioneer tend to have very different habits, right? Like Steve Jobs lived in a house that had like no furniture in it and always wore the same colored clothes. Didn't wear shoes. People just eccentricness comes with, I think, being able to not have to follow everybody else's rules. You just kind of define your own path. But part of that is perhaps creates a little bit of eccentricity. Absolutely. And, and oddly enough, a lot of his efforts were really done just so that he could make the movies he wanted to make. So you'd mentioned earlier about the, the merchandising rights. One of the big parts of the contract was that George maintained the merchandising rights for for posters and t-shirts and his thought process at the time was he could use that money to make the next movies because he 
even back then in the 70s, he had these ideas for other movies. And so he only thought he was going to, you know, have a few things that would be, you know, sold. Because at that time, back in the 70s, merchandising for movies wasn't really that big of a thing. Mm-hmm. And look where it's gone now. I mean, they're, they're still today in, in 2020 making new Star Wars toys. For adults. For adults. Who, who, right, for adults. <laughs> who act like children. Kevin Maurer. I spoke to Kevin Maurer about this a few uh, few months ago. Kevin Maurer is a former vice president at Hasbro, and Demetrius and I know him. He's a great guy. Known him for 20 years. Um, More. Almost he, 30. <laughs> he's, he said that nobody, you know, I said, what is the amount of toy sales that we have today compared to when, you know, the 80s and 90s? And he said 10%. I said, wow, 10%, 10%. So toys just don't count anymore. My kids have a couple of toys. They're kind of stuffies, well, but they're 13 now, so they don't use them anymore. But they had, like, stuffy dolls. I don't know of a lot of people that have action figures. I don't know of a lot of people that have, like, um, the kind of things that we used to have. And I wonder if it was a fad or if it was just the time because there was no, you know, iPhones or iPads and stuff. Um that's what I would but guess. Yeah. I think yeah. as things have gotten more virtual, the physical object. And I almost though do wonder if like some of those things became like collectibles that, that older people would buy. And it was less about the play aspect and more about the keep it in its box and put it on a shelf aspect. The toy that I've seen the most being sold really in a long time is the Baby Yoda doll from, I think it's Mattel that makes it. That Baby Yoda doll, it could be Hasbro, that Baby Yoda doll, I belong to a group on Facebook. That, that's it. Just show me Baby Yoda in a whole bunch of different funny poses, you know? Like, he's out there making <laughs> barbecue. He's out there driving a car. He's out there getting beer. You know, just all these crazy things that he's doing. And there's about, like, 3,000 people in that group. So you're an and adult have, that like, plays with Yoda's. a stuffed animal. That's rebellious. Yeah, but there's so many other people that do it, mostly women, may I add. They're out there taking pictures of Baby Yoda. So that toy sells, but I don't think action figures sell anymore. But I think, I don't know, like my, um, we went to the, to Disney last summer with my niece and my brother. And when we got to the droid factory, they both just went bananas. And so my brother built an R2-D2. My brother is 53. My niece is 11, and she got her BB-8, and they just, like, love those things. So, I mean, an object I think that people still do want. There's some physical representation of the film that people want to interface with. But, yeah, I mean, they're not, I guess, toys anymore. They're not playthings as much as they were. That's sad. Yeah, because that imagination. Go ahead. Do you know if George Lucas what his thoughts were on the toys. I never heard anybody talk about that. In terms of, I, I, I know that one of the things he was, he was very proud of is that, that, that merchandising and the toys and everything else that came with it, the t-shirts and the pajamas and, and stuff. He used that money to just go back into the movies. I just wonder what he thought about the toys. You know, I, the, like if they were like silly them? and like, oh, this is going to yeah. make a lot of money, but I really feel like I'm selling out. Or if he really thought it was a cool way to have children interface 
with the movie and really fall in love with it. Yeah, I don't know. That'd be that'd be a, a good thing to to look into. Going back to the topic of rebellion, right, and, and just the way that George did it. I mean, look at the name the 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 rebel, the rebellion, Rogue One. Um, even the word rogue, which is kind of the same thing, it's somebody goes their own way. There are themes throughout Star Wars. For it's really the theme, Han Solo. Just I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I do what I want to do. Lando Calrissian. There's so many characters. Jyn Erso, Princess Leia. I mean, how many characters follow the norms? You know, Padme Amidala. And then when Anakin tries to do it, he can't do it because he's just not built that way. You know, he tried for a while, but no one, no one gave him any respect because they knew he was selling himself out. Really, only Obi-Wan Kenobi really is the only one who who, who wasn't rebellious. No. Even Qui-Gon. Even Qui-Gon was rebellious. I would say Obi-Wan was rebellious because he, he ended up following Qui-Gon's path. He didn't necessarily want to train Anakin. He did it out of faith and commitment to his master who went so, like you said, Qui-Gon was rebellious. Qui-Gon was very rebellious. Even Yoda was rebellious. So in the in Star Wars The Clone Wars, I think it was in season six, Yoda took advantage of Anakin's rebellious side and used Anakin to help stage an escape from the Jedi Temple. Hmm. And that's when he went out and um, traveled to Dagobah to, to talk to Qui-Gon and learn learned some of the things that Qui-Gon had learned about the Force. So even Yoda himself was a little bit rebellious. You know what an act of rebellion is when you are expected to do something and either you don't want to do it or you, you want to intentionally surprise somebody else with a different result. And I think when we saw the prequel trilogy, I remember just the utter shock of how different they were stylistically. They were like in a completely different film series. I mean, now we kind of collectively put them all together and kind of, you know, put all the movies from the prequel series to the sequels, all of them kind of now fit together. But when The Phantom Menace came out, you know, Naboo Fighters, those big yellow ships, and you have a bunch Mm -hmm. of droids that say, Roger, Roger. And you have uh, uh, Jar Jar Binks. You know, everything was just so different. And it eventually became Star Wars. But that was kind of rebellious in itself. He didn't give people what they expected. And I think that created a problem when they made the sequels. They didn't really know which way to go. You know, well, we want to remind people that, you know, which fans are we trying to please here? Are we trying to please the ones that like the original trilogy? Or are we trying to please the ones that like the, the, the prequel trilogy? But that being said, I think J.J. did a good job on the first one. And then the other one sort of... Uh, didn't match, but you could say Ryan Johnson was rebellious. He just did whatever he wanted, right? And we talked about Ryan Johnson, per, you know, off off the show many, many times, and he's a rebellious person. But do you want a rebellious person in a movie that you're trying to build the story that was planned? I, I guess it was planned that has a, a, a pre-de- predetermined outcome, and then you go, yeah, you know, what? I don't need that stuff. I'm gonna do what I want to do. 
Well, Disney kind of made that rebellion clear when they purchased Lucasfilm. You know, George had some treatments written for the sequel trilogy, and Bob Iger and the, the folks at Disney at the time said, thank you, but we're not necessarily going to use them. So they were rebelling against the rebel. Hmm. Yeah, have hmm. those ever been released, or do we know how close the final trilogy oh, actually matches to George's vision? There's some widely different stuff. Some of the things that George had talked about was in the sequel trilogy, he was going to spend a little bit more time on the inner space talking about the midichlorians and the force. So they mm. were going to be, you know, wildly different than, than what showed up on the screen. Wasn't it some of that stuff was touched on in uh, Clone Wars, right? Some of it, like Yoda. A little bit, but not anywhere near what George was gonna, where, where George was gonna take it. And one of the things I think is very interesting as we look at all of these films, what ended up on the screen for us to view wasn't necessarily part of the beginning stuff. I mean, even A New Hope, I think it was four or five different scripts that they had put together for that movie. So the movies were very dynamic and, 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 and changing from, from, from time to time as George noodled around with them more. Do we know that he liked or disliked any of the movies that came after Disney? Do, you, do we know which ones they were? I would imagine that he would really like Solo movie. I think it is one of my favorite and under really just under old but, and also Rogue One Rogue One was incredible I hope they do more stories like that yeah I don't know how yeah, how much he liked or didn't like them so we don't know whether he any of them not that he I can say for certain come on well he was involved a little bit in the Mandalorian he showed up on set yeah I saw him on gallery I was a, I was surprised both Rogue One and followed the formula that I thought was very authentic to Star Wars. You know, like the, the last part of Rogue One, the last third of Rogue One is the most Star Wars anything that's ever happened. <laughs> you know, just everything comes out at once. There's lightsabers, there's people fighting, there's stormtroopers, there's X-Wings and TIE Fighters, there's ships colliding into each other, there's Mon Calamari saying, what? There's just so much stuff going on. And it's such a short period of time. And then, of course, there's that famous Vader which just kills everybody. Well, even that shocked people. Truly, I don't know if if George would if George liked that scene or not, because from what I've read and heard, I thought George wanted Darth Vader's story to be much more of a tragedy and less about his his strength as a as a as a dark side user. So I don't know if he would if he would celebrate that scene with with Darth Vader and his badassery, or if he would say, "Eh, that's not my Vader." I think we needed to see it. I mean, it it just, it it retroactively fixes everything in Star Wars for that character, the way he moves, and what you why you fear him because you never really see him do anything. And then when you see him in his prime in Rogue One. You kind of go back and watch the original films, and it kind of it, it adds it back in because you've seen what you can do. And so when you're, you're like, oh, this guy's pretty dangerous. 
Because <laughs> every time he fights Luke, he's not, he's not taking it easy, and he's not really fighting Luke. And when he killed the Emperor, he just kind of picked him up. Yeah, he could do a force choke every now and then, but that's not horribly scary. Unless it's happening to you. That's just basic moves. Yeah, but he also did force basic choke moves. via a Zoom meeting. So he wasn't even in the room with you. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> he killed a he killed a dude during a Zoom meeting. Well, those work meetings do get kind of crazy. Though. You always have somebody that just like, can you turn the mic off if you're gonna, you know, have your kids in the background? Can you at least pretend to look at the screen and not your iPhone? That's just me. So anyway, I, I think that the the problem with the sequel. Th- movies to many people is that it didn't follow Luke's rebellious Lucas's rebellious streak. It didn't really try to set anything new apart, right? It didn't say, okay, that sequels will have a distinctive look and feel just like both the prequels and the original films did. And and then try they try to emulate some of it and part of it and look, I really like them because they have been better yes. I like The Last Jedi that much at all. Um, was it a beautiful film? Yeah. It, it was some of the best shots since Empire Strikes Back. But I think if you're going to be rebellious like Ryan Johnson is, you better have a good story. And he, to me, he didn't do it. He didn't have that story. Because speaking of rebellious, uh, in a way, like, I guess, Ray is kind of rebellious in the movie, right, in, in the, the Rise of Skywalker, a little bit, you know, she starts trying to find out Jedi powers, and she's trying to connect the Jedi's, and she's not really um, feeling it, you know, and then in The Last Jedi, Luke's not giving her what she wants, she almost kills him with a lightsaber, she kind of does her own thing, but I don't know, if, now I think about it, it's not probably rebellious, is it, it's just anger, <laughs> she just wants answers. Well, see, that's where it gets interesting when you talk about rebellion. So you can do the large-scale rebellion, you know, a bunch of people resisting um, a, a larger organized force, like the rebels versus the Empire. And then, to your point, Anthony, you can also get down to those individual acts of rebellion and the impacts that they can have. You know, so so Luke running off to... Well, Jen Erso, just one person. Yeah, I mean, Luke rebelled from Uncle Owen and Peru. Remember that? Oh, Biggs is right. I'm never going to make it to the Academy. But, man, once he had his chance. How did he learn how to fly that sky, like X-Wing? Come on. Well, he flew the man, sky he was, the, was he ever in yeah, space exactly. before? He used to have a T-16, and he used to bullseye Womp Rats. He doesn't go into space. It's not a, it's not you a don't rocket know that. ship. You don't know where the Womp Rats are. He might have had to go to space. Rats? Are they low hey, remember, there's rates? always some space creature. Remember that giant sea serpent that came out of that asteroid that the Millennium Falcon was in? Come the on. slug? Yeah. <laughs> is that a giant womp rat? I don't know what it is, but I'm I just saying there could be... I don't know, I don't know my, my space biology. There could be mammals and amphibians that live in meteors. Well, there's the space whales that Ezra used to take Thrawn away. Those oh. space whales are really pushing it, you know. That 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 really is the edge of believability in space. I I'll believe a giant slug, but a space whale? Come on. Not just a space whale, but a space whale with hyperspace, that hyperspeed. 
Demetrius is like, what are you guys talking about? Yeah, now you guys lost me. Hyper- <laughs> it's in the, it's the the last season of sorry spoiler. It's the what the, the hell are you talking about? <laughs> it's the last the last season of uh, Star Wars Rebels. All right, all right. It got a little weird. It got a little weird. You have yet to see this, Demetrius. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bring. I have it. not. No, that's okay. <laughs> now I'm intrigued. Even more we'll give so. Give away this pale. I mean, Filoni kind of. I you know I guess Filoni wrote all that stuff, right? Um, there's your. I don't think he wrote all of it because even with do, the, I'm going to put a whale in this thing. I'm going to put a whale in space with giant tentacles. Well, look at the look at the 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 space squid or whatever that was in in Solo. There's lots yeah, of big beasts in space. That. When you put it that way, <laughs> hey, was that the same? I got to give same Solo thing, another chance. Guess, wait, you don't like Solo? You know, I had a really hard time believing the character as Han, as a young Han. It just he wasn't tall enough. Didn't quite look like him, but by the end, I came around. But it, the movie felt a little lower budget, and I didn't love the actor that played Han, so it was tough to get into. Actually, yeah. Well, I watch it again because it, it actually feels to me it feels like they spent a lot of money on something, especially when you know um, they had to film they had to it twice. Film the movie twice. What? I would love to see the first one. Oh yeah, they had to film that movie twice. Why is that? I don't remember oh, that. Can can you know the story? Tell the story. Yeah. More rebellion. Had, more rebellion. They had they had two. Well, actually, wait, wait before you before you, this is a example, a perfect example of rebellion. The two directors just did not care what anybody thought, and then they got fired. And then they brought in Ron Howard to to back cleanup. Hmm. I can't please tell the story. Well, well, Demetrius needs to know the story. It's what I find story. what I find really interesting about it is. They've done a wonderful job of not letting any of that stuff come out anywhere. The two directors haven't said, you know, bad things about wor- working with Lucasfilm. There's no concept art from that time. There's no video shown from that time. You know, the behind-the-scenes stuff. It's it's they they did a lot of work on Solo. I don't even remember the 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 two directors' names, but it just wasn't working out well and. Kathleen Kennedy and the, the folks from Disney decided to, to part ways with those two directors and bring in uh, Ron Howard to, to finish the movie. With uh, was, is it Lawrence Kasdan? He was involved in the in the script for Solo. Yes. So, yes. How, I mean, how did they? How did Ron Howard make a film that fast? It doesn't make any sense, especially for all the special effects scenes, like the train scene. Everything just seems like it would take a long time to film. To Wait, be, how long did he do it? Was the first time you did it? Sorry, I missed that. I think like it was crazy, like four months, right? It was like some crazy amount. Yeah, of time. it was a short amount of time. It doesn't make any sense that it just came off so well. So I wanted to know like what was finished that he, he couldn't have made the whole film. I heard it was like what eighty percent. I don't even know if it was that much. Yeah, Demetrius, you gotta. Watch that film again. There's some really good stuff. I'll watch it I mean, it really, again. The, to me, that movie feels really Star Warsy. That's why I like it so much. And, uh, and it definitely wasn't cheap. It was. Of course, if I had to guess, I'd say it was like two hundred and something million dollars to get make that out. movie. Wow. Okay. Well, it was a comedy, which is the problem with it. So, the movie was funny, uh, and it was just too funny. And it was like a, a they called it like a buddy cop movie, and the people watched it. They said this isn't feel anything like star wars so that that's why they redid it and they didn't want to make the changes themselves of course they asked them to make the changes themselves and they didn't make the changes themselves but i think also that movie 
was originally supposed to be released in the wintertime at Christmas, which is like I was watching them all with my family, which is go to Christmas and watch the movies. But for some reason, uh, yeah, because Avatar was supposed to come out that winter, that Christmas, and it didn't come out because it delayed oh, right. for years. Yeah, well, that's when they moved that movie from Christmas to May, and I, I think that more than anything else hurt that movie. I think that move from Christmas to May really, really hurt it. That and not everybody liked a new replacement for Han Solo. You know what's surprising, though? You know, like, if you watch The Avengers and you watch, like, uh, Nick Fury and then they do the special effects where he's, like, 30 years younger and it looks completely real? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They should have just hired an actor and just put Han's face in it. They could have easily done that. So, like, CGI Tarkin? Easily is, easily is a word. Right, like, CGI Muff Tarkin, right. So I mean, that was like, pretty damn convincing. There's a lot convincing. of CG effects. There's a lot of CG effects that are almost imperceptible as being real. Like, ILM did this thing. Not ILM. The, um, uh, James Cameron's company. The movie that just came out, The Terminator, which is really Terminator 3, the new Terminator movie that came out. There's a scene in it with Sarah Connor and um, her son. I don't want to give it away, but they are in the beginning of the film when they were younger, like 30 years ago. I did like five double takes. That's like 10 takes. I did like a whole bunch of double takes going, how in the heck did they film this? So then they released that it was all computer graphics. It wasn't even, there was actors there, but it was all CG, the clothes, the hair, wow. everything. Did you guys see it? It is really a perfect effect. I, I, I couldn't figure out how they did it. But yeah, so they can do it if they really wanted to, especially even a marquee character like Han Solo. Totally. If they thought it was really going to be an issue. You know, just put his face on there. Nobody's going to care. I mean, they put a full digital, like you said, Tarkin on the screen. Come on. At least Han's face, you can change his face. There's like deep fakes everywhere now where you don't even know what's real anymore. This is ILM we're talking about. Yep. ILM. So, Ken. Your rebellious themes, right? What is the most rebellious thing you ever did, uh, like ever? Well, I don't know about the most rebellious thing, but one of the most meaningful rebellious thing was I left home at 16 years old. Wow. Like full on packed my bags and left home. Left my mother, left my two brothers and two sisters. And didn't talk to them for about Damn, nine years. I didn't years. want to get this deep. <laughs> no kidding. I know that's more for another time or more alcohol. <laughs> so. More for a, a, a chair and a psychologist. Yeah. That sounds pretty... I don't even have an extreme story like that. Like I was hoping you would say something like you didn't return a library book. <laughs> well, you I asked what... You said you did ask most rebellious. Most, yeah. right. Oh, that's kind of interesting. You're an interesting person. I think my most rebellious thing is I don't like... It's hard for me to work somewhere that isn't something that I started. And I've always had that issue where I tend to sort of start my own companies because nobody else will have me. So you're very George Lucas then? My fear in life. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I, I just think there's just some things that you have to do because you can't really fit anywhere else so corporate kind of job thing never really was my thing so I never really did it I've only done it a couple of times 
and I never liked it. It always struck me as odd that you have to sit by a desk, you know, for eight amount, eight hours, nine hours, and that's supposed to be like, especially for creative jobs. That's when I'm supposed to be creative at those hours. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you're like working for yourself, an entrepreneur, it's all you know. It's three o'clock in the morning. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. It's seven o'clock. It just comes and goes, and you can work around it, and you can live a normal life in the middle of it and you can choose the kind of lifestyle you want uh you know if i want to go away for a couple of days i can do it um so that's rebellious if you look at it that way but it depends on how you define rebellious like are you rebellious because everyone's doing something and you just aren't that way or are you rebellious because you're doing something wrong and and, mm. and you want to start trouble you know that's an interesting way to look I do at it, it. rebellion that's in. good a rebellion that's just different Rebellion that's bad. Yeah, and that's I mean, going back to what we're talking about. Different. Right, and it's all in the eye of, of whoever perceives it, right? So in 1968, when the people were, the kids were protesting the Vietnam War, there were people that thought, well, these guys are just troublemakers. And they're like, no, we're just trying not to get drafted and killed. Mm-hmm. And you see the same thing today with Black Lives Matter. Well, these guys are just troublemakers. No, we just don't want to get killed. That's not troublemaking i just want the you know so you it's really in the eye of whoever perceives what you're doing is not what you should be doing yeah and how sure. do these standards even get created you know there's this perception know. that everyone everyone goes to school right like that's what you're supposed to do everyone goes to school that's just what teenagers do well no teenagers didn't always do that actually it's a kind of a recent thing right so i think things these norms that get established like in the 50s and 60s and 70s we go to school, we go to college, and when you go to college, you get a job. Those things aren't really that established as people think they are. You know, I think the actual public education system didn't start until like the what the late 19th century, early 20th century. It's not that old. Before that, nobody did anything like this. You know, they didn't go to school necessarily, like in, in medieval England. You know, I don't know. Did that? <laughs> that wasn't required for everybody. Certainly not like it is today. Yeah. But it's funny because, Anthony, your rebellion is actually, to me, I've always admired and kind of envied it to a certain extent because it takes a, a, a kind of courage. So even though your bosses might have been annoyed that you always wanted to do your own thing, you go and do your own thing, you do great at it. But, yeah, it takes a certain amount of courage um, that not everybody has, which I think should be applauded. Well, thank you, but I don't think it takes courage. I think it's just selfishness. Right? I just This is just what I want to do. You know, I just never saw it the other way. It's so hard for me to do it anyway, like my short mental attention span. <laughs> it's so hard. I, think I mean, for even, me, you know, everybody, it is. I mean, don't you get tired of going to work? Not, not that you don't want to work. That's not what he's saying. But isn't it difficult sometimes to go to work? And now that you've had a few months at home, how do you feel about going back to work? Well, it's, it's funny. So um, my mother was a college counselor to help get place students for their internships and I remember very specifically before going to my very first one and I was like mom how on earth am I supposed to just be creative between eight and five like I work in school at two in the morning between nine and two is when I do my best work how am I supposed to do it at eight in the morning so yes I think for a creative person it is difficult and you know some jobs I've had are far more behind a desk and others have far been more about you know traveling and meeting with clients and customers 
I prefer that to be honest. So the working from home thing is not working well for me. I mean, I'm still happily employed. I'm still getting my work done, but to be stuck in front of a computer all day long on zoom calls is not how I want to work and not having other people around to kind of vibe off of doesn't work for me. So if I could rebel right now, uh, funny enough, I am, I'm going to start rebelling next week. Our office opens on Monday. Um, they still encourage everyone to work from home, but if anyone wants to go to the office, they can. So I'm going to start going in one day a week just to like get out of the house and have a little bit kind of different um, vantage points. That's like rebelling in say, reverse. Yeah, it's rebelling in reverse. But my rebelling, you know, I guess my biggest rebelling wasn't even that bad. It's as a kid, like between 13 and 15, I I hung out mostly with older people, like you know, teenagers that were older. Like we're now three years means nothing. Then it means everything. So I used to you sneak mean, like, out cigars of cigars or rolled in their sleeves. That kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. And we had a, a a big house with a like front the main stairways and then there was a old stairway from in the back that my house was built in like the early 1900s it was actually the servant stairway but so i would my parents would go to sleep and i'd sneak out the back stairway and go meet up with my friends and hang out and go to shows and see bands play and all this kind of stuff and i was wholesome i didn't do any drugs or anything bad i came home went to bed and still went to school the next morning but I know my if my parents ever found out, they would have just lost their shit. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, exactly. I did tell my mom once, and she's like, what? I cannot believe my good little boy would do something like this. <laughs> you know what's sad? Like, she has this great view of you, and then, like, you know, you just kind of ruin it for forever. <laughs> like, why did you, like, just keep that stuff to yourself. There's no need to share no that need to tell anyone about yourself. All right, all right. Sorry. It's your brother's job, and he's upset. Sorry, Mom. Yeah, exactly. My brother was the bad one. He was bad. There's an upper limit to the amount know. of rebellion one family can take. <laughs> I don't know what that point. limit is, but... Well, I think I think the, the topic of rebellion is some, something that is, is endemic to Star Wars. I mean, the entire premise of Star Wars is formulating a rebellion. You know? And even, even when you see... If you know the backstory of the sequel trilogy, the stuff that's not on film, they're called the um, uh, the Resistance, but really they're the Rebellion, right? Because they, they're Princess Leia's troops that aren't supposed to be part of the Defense Force because they don't really fear the First Order, or they don't really believe that the First Order poses a threat. So Leia rebels yet again and creates her own force, which is, eventually is the one that defeats the First Order. So it just never ends with her. It's it's what we're talking about with the work. It's just a personality. The Skywalkers just have real social issues. That's they don't like being bossed times. around. They don't like being bossed around. Who does? Hey, Senator Organa, do you have any suggestions for Captain Antilles before we leave? Captain Antilles. Yes, Your Highness. I'm placing these droids in your care. Treat them well. Clean them up. Have the protocol droids mind wiped. What? Oh no! 